Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Glad to be back. Great to have you again. Um, by way of quick introduction for my audience that may not know you, you are a patent attorney and a longtime libertarian author based in Texas. Um, I think the discussion we had last time was largely centered on law and a libertarian world. And this time, um, on your recommendation, we're going to be diving into this book by Hoppe titled A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And I'm a, a big fan of Hoppe's writing. I've also explored his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, on this show. And uh, I think he's just very incisive with his words. And um, it, it is a bit high level, I guess, in, in terms of its, its vernacular and the theory that's invoked, but uh, he, he draws quite mm, convincing conclusions, I guess you would say. Um, before we jump into the book, is there anything you'd like to say about it or, or about yourself? Well, yeah, so I've been uh, interested in um, free market thought, libertarian thought, and economics, free market economics, and then Austrian economics since basically high school, which was back in the early 80s. Um, and in college and then in law school, I started studying you know, some of the more advanced works in more depth like Rothbard and Mises and, and Nozick and people like that. Um, Hoppe sort of started coming onto the scene um, in the mid 80s. He, um, he is a German philosopher and economist and he he moved he he, um, he 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 discovered the works of the Austrian school and the radical libertarian school that is Mises and Rothbard and people like that, and he moved to the U.S. in '85 and he studied and lived and worked with uh, and um, collaborated with Murray Rothbard for the last ten years of Murray's life uh, from '85 to '95 when, when Rothbard died, and he basically is a. Um, he is a, he's one of the true few praxeologists in the school like he really um, uses Mises as praxeology which is his unique theory of economics and the methodology which we can get into if you like the word seems imposing and daunting but it's, it's really not that complicated 
Um, so Hoppe actually uh, uses that a lot in his reasoning, both in his uh, ethical reasoning, his political analysis, and in his economic reasoning. Um, when I was a law student in 88, it's um, the first time I heard of Hans Hoppe, I had already started exploring my own uh, approach to libertarian rights because uh, the other approaches were sort of consequentialist and utilitarian. You know, the idea that, you know, practically liberty works better and gives us more guns and butter, um, which is true, I think. But then there's a more principled type argument. A lot of people make the natural rights argument, you know, the argument that we have rights and that's why government laws and criminal actions that invade our rights are wrong. Um, because of these natural rights. And Ayn Rand was one influence there, and there's other thinkers too in, the, in that vein. Um, I started toying with my own idea for justifying rights when I was in law school, and I ended up publishing that later. It's called Estoppel. That's my own version of rights. And right when I was exploring that in law school, um, Hoppe came to my attention because he wrote um, a pretty provocative and um, uh, notorious article in Liberty Magazine, which was popular at the time. And it was his his own theory of rights, and it was sort of a blend of Kant and Habermas, his teacher, who's a famous European um, German philosopher, and uh, Rothbard, and Locke, and you know, sort of uh, in Mises, he blended all these ideas to come up with his own theory of rights, which he calls argumentation ethics, which is in this book, Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, in Chapter Seven, which we can we can get to, and uh, it blew me away. There was a symposium. There was about a dozen or 15 or so um, libertarian philosophers who responded to him, and most of them didn't agree with him, like David Friedman and Tibor McCann and people like that. Uh, uh, others have been more hearty uh, in, uh, endorsers of it, like Rothbard and Walter Block and people like that and me. Um, so that's how he came to my attention, and um, so I started devouring his work. And I agree with almost everything Hans has written. Um, we really are of a like mind, and I've learned a tremendous amount from him, and I've built in my own writing upon an um, uncounted number of, of insights from Hans. Um, I call him Hans. He's, he's not a pre – you know, when I met him the first time in 94, he just said, call me Hans. So mm -hmm. I always call him Hans. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, anyway, his first two works in English, he had written some stuff in German before. But his first two works in English in book form were this book here, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism in 88 or 89. I can't remember. I think 89. And then a follow-up book, which is a collection of essays called um, um, The Economics and Ethics of Private Property. And those two books are core to his kind of fundamental theory. Um, a later collection, which Jeff Tucker assembled when he was at uh, Laissez-Faire Books, I believe, um, is called uh, The Great Fiction, and that's another assemblage of his collected essays on methodology and economics and politics. And some of his later stuff, uh, after he wrote those first two books, he, he started going more into social theory, um, which like the democracy book that you mentioned and some other works, um, started talking about immigration and cultural issues and paleo-libertarianism and um, that kind of stuff. But his earlier work, especially this first one that we're talking about here, is more theory-oriented and more – it's more about the fundamental concepts of economics and political theory and political analysis and how we justify rights, how we clarify our terms about property and things like that. And that's what I find so valuable in this book. And, and to be honest, um, um, I can stop and let you ask questions, but uh, I, could, I could kind of break down how I view the structure of the book and how the best way to approach it is. Yeah, please go ahead with that. And then I'll um, I'll circle us into the introduction here. 
So chapters one and two are really important because chapter one is introductory, but it contains a lot of his preliminary sort of definitions, and then they're elaborated in chapter two. So those are really good, and they're pretty short, and um, um, they're good to read for just to get a good conceptual or rigorous conceptual understanding of human action, what property is, what capitalism and socialism are in ideal forms. Now, Hans is a German, a German and kind of uh, kind of a neo-Kantian writer, so he writes in a pretty compressed form. I find his prose very lucid and clear and rigorous and precise, but it is sometimes dense, so you have to pay mm-hmm. attention when you read it. Um, and then the following three or four chapters were on elaborating different types of socialism, like socialism Russian style, he calls it, socialism – um, uh, conservative style, or, or the social, the socialism of conservatism, and then social socialism, um, democratic like style, style. In here, democratic yeah. style. So he talks about egalitarianism and and the socialism. So basically, his view is that socialism is essentially institution institutionalized aggression, whereas capitalism, ideal in ideal form, is institutionalized respect for private property rights, mm-hmm. and aggression would be the violation of private property rights. Um, and private property rights are simply the exclusive rights to control scarce resources in the world, including our bodies, in accordance with the kind of private law principles that have developed in the West in the last couple thousand years and in the common law and the Roman law and in libertarian and classical liberal theory, which is basically the Lockean idea that everyone owns themselves and then we own things that were unowned in the world that we start using and homesteading or that you get by contract. It's pretty simple, the kind of core rules of, of private property. And um, now he seeks to justify that, which we'll get to in a second. But basically, um, um, so socialism can be defined as the system. See, classically, socialism is defined as centralized control of the means of production. But Hans thinks there's a more essentialist way of defining it, like the, the core, the essence of socialism is having an institution like the state, some collective entity that can basically have rules and laws that on a systematic economy-wide basis – routinely violate private property rights or commit mm-hmm. aggression. Um, now, controlling the means of production by a central bureau, bureau is one subset of that or one type of that, but the core of it is violating people's rights institutionally. Now, that's to be distinguished from what criminals do, which are private. You can think of them as private socialists right? because they, they privately redistribute wealth from you to them, but it's not institutionalized. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's seen as aberrant and it's seen as illegal, although people can get away with it to some degree. But on an institutional level, it's even worse because you, you can't escape from it so easily. Um, so we regard – and Hans regards the state in any government whatsoever is, is to the degree it's a government, and to be a government means to either monopolize um, the legal system or to tax people or both. Which is usually what happens. Um, that's what a government or a state is, really a state, and um, that that agency is necessarily socialistic to the extent that it's a state, and it's necessarily criminal. So, in a sense, these things are all they all dovetail together. State stateness, you know, being a state, um, criminality, and socialism are all the same thing. Except private criminals are a different type of criminality. It's not institutionalized. Mm. So, states are institutionalized criminality. Whereas capitalism is institutionalized, widespread respect for private property rights, and that's why those societies tend to be more prosperous is because people can trade within them and, and make long-term plans and, and live peacefully and not waste time fighting and taxing each other and all that kind of stuff. So that's his sort of paradigm. So in the following chapters after one and two, he, he says, okay, socialism is this, but it can come in different flavors. 
So the classical style would be communism, socialism, Russian style, he calls it. But there's also an aspect of socialism and conservatism, right? Like controlling people's bodies, uh, saying you can't uh, sell marijuana is a type of socialism because it's the government assuming partial ownership of your body or conscripting you for the draft, right? Or putting you in jail if you don't have the right religion or if you sell the wrong kind of books. So those kinds of legal controls are also socialistic. Um, as well as the welfare state stuff. So he goes into those and he analyzes it. And Hans is actually from East Germany, so his family was divested um, um, after after World War II. You know, his family lost a lot of property because of, of, of expropriation by the commies, and uh, so he has a healthy respect and hatred, well, hatred for uh, <laughs> communism and um, and that that style. So he goes into that too. And then after that, he talks. Then he goes into methodology. So he's going to start talking now about his justification for rights, which is in chapter seven. But he lays the groundwork for that in chapter six when he talks about kind of the methodological mistake made in economics and in social science by the positivists, like that's Karl Popper and his group. Uh, this is basically the empiricism or logical positivism, which is the idea that the only meaningful statements are those that are testable. Now, Mises and the Austrians and Hoppe. They, be, they believe that that, ki- that type of mentality, that type of approach is appropriate for the natural sciences. Like when you uh, – when a physicist or a chemist um, tries to understand the world, they're trying to understand causal laws, like the laws of cause and effect. And the way we do that is, uh, well, aided by our intuition and common sense, we come up with guesses as to what's operating behind the scenes, like the law of gravity or you know whatever, and – we hypothesize that, and then we can test it, and we can confirm or, or fa- we can actually falsify. And so over time, our knowledge of causal laws grows and gets more and more refined, but you never have direct knowledge of these laws. You just have a hypothesis that hasn't been falsified so far. Mm-hmm. So that's how the natural sciences work. The problem is that that method, which is appropriate to the natural sciences and the causal sciences, um, uh, is not the only type of knowledge that we have, right? We have logic, we have uh, philosophy, we have um, um, philo- you know, different types of philosophical knowledge. And um, what happened was because of the success of the natural sciences in the, in the Industrial Revolution in the 20th century, and because of the scattered form and all the different theories in the social sciences, they started to be regarded as soft sciences and not really rigorous and so economics, for example, used to be more of an a priori science, like not, a, not an empirical science that you, you, you test your hypothesis. You just – you use your reasoning. You say, look, like the law of supply and demand, you would come up with pure reasoning. Like if there's a supply of something and people value it, then if you have more of it, then, then the, the, the price of it will fall. Right? You, can, mm-hmm. you can show that by reasoning, or if you have a wage control like the minimum wage, then you will cause unemployment. You don't need to do a test to prove that. It's, it's, it's – is necessarily so. But economics started trying to say, hey, we're a real science too. And real science is what Karl Popper said uh, has to be modeled after the way physics does things. So basically a choice was given to the soft sciences or to the social sciences. If you want to be considered to be a real science, you have to adopt our methods. And economics did, has done that, right? Not the Austrians, but the, the Chicago School and the and the, cla- the neo- neoclassicals and the monetarists and these guys. So basically they, they say, oh, well, uh, usually the minimum wage causes unemployment, but we have to do a test to see. May- maybe if you could raise the minimum wage and maybe it would cause more employment. I mean, who knows? <laughs> because nothing is fixed. Um, so anyway, so in chapter six, Hoppe 
criticizes that using a lot of Mises's and Rothbard's criticisms of Popper and logical positivism. Uh, for one thing, logical positivism is internally incoherent because logical positivism essentially says the only way we can have true scientific knowledge is to have a, a hypothesis formulated that we, that's, that's falsifiable that you can do an experiment on and, and either falsify it or not. The problem is that very rule itself is not falsifiable because it's mm. just it's an it's, it itself is an a priori rule like you. Right. So so their their entire philosophy is so it, and that shows that Mises was right that we have to look at the world in a dualistic way like there's two different realms of knowledge one pertaining to teleology which is the understanding of human actions and purposes and choices and one pertaining to cause and effect the material physical world and actually in a sense the 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 physical sciences are dependent upon the more broader philosophical science because again you can't even formulate the rule of how you have the scientific method without a without an a priori perspective on that right so in a sense uh, physics is dependent upon philosophy right you could say mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then and I'll stop after this but at, in chapter seven Hans then goes into his um, his defense of natural rights he says that look utilitarianism and empiricism is obviously a flawed way to get to political principles like what our rights are, what the law should be, because as David Hume showed, you can't logically derive an ought from an is, a normative statement from a purely factual statement, and that's correct, and that's one flaw of the traditional natural rights approach. They basically say, here's the way nature is, and therefore we should do this. That doesn't follow. You're going, you're, you're going from one logical statement uh, about empirical facts to a second logical realm having to do with norms and human human rules of conduct, mm -hmm. and that's a logical flaw. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one problem with the traditional natural rights approach. But the, the util, utilitarian approach is also flawed because you can't sum up human human utility. And anyway, even if you could, it wouldn't be ethical to like mm -hmm. hurt one person to benefit a second person just because it benefits the second person more. I mean that that doesn't. Mm -hmm automatically mean it's, it's a better world if you if you hurt bill gates to benefit a thousand poor people okay that's not that's not obviously a good thing because mm -hmm. you've hurt one person um in any case so hoppe comes up with sort of a hybrid model which is um it's not utilitarian but it doesn't suffer the problem of the is ought problem so he basically comes up with what he calls argumentation ethics borrowing upon an earlier work of his teacher Habermas uh, called discourse ethics or communication ethics, and the basic idea of that is that we know that the libertarian norms are, are valid, that is, people should respect each other's property rights, and that socialism is invalid or illegitimate, that is, it's wrong or unjustified for you to take other people's property without their consent or to use their body without their consent or to commit aggression against them because you could never justify a rule like that. Um, uh, because to justify it, you would have to be engaged in the peaceful activity of discourse or argumentation that is mm -hmm. like peaceful – like you and I are doing now, mm -hmm. peaceful discussion with another person to, to attempt to figure out what the right rules are. But when you engage in that activity, you're already adopting – you're presupposing the validity of, of say, peace and cooperation mm -hmm. and rationality and reason instead of using force. Like you're, you're basically conceding. Okay, the way to come to the truth of the matter is for you and I to trade ideas and have a discussion, not for me to coerce you and say, unless you accept what I'm proposing as true, I'm going to hurt you. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I could coerce you into saying I'm right, but that's not genuine argumentation. So genuine argumentation, a genuine attempt to discover the truth of a matter, 
presupposes both people are assuming each one owns their own bodies and they're going to leave each other alone. And if they can't come to an agreement, they'll walk away. They'll agree to disagree. Right. Um, so those kind of core norms are inherent in any civilized attempt to, uh, to discover truth. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, you could never propose a norm that contradicts that. Like you could say, I hereby propose that even though we're treating each other peacefully right now, that I have the right to kill you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm already respecting your rights to listen to me and to, to, to make your mind up about what I'm proposing at the same time that I'm proposing you don't have that right. It's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. right. So contradictions can't be true. So the point is it's like a Hoppe's test is like a filter that filters out any aggressive proposal because it's con it's contrary to the nature of the peaceful activity argumentation that you, you have to be engaged in to, to discover truth in the first place. Mm. Um, and so he uses that to say basically that what this means is that any – any advocacy of socialism is in, is internally incoherent and has to be false because if you propose like redistribution of wealth or taxation or putting someone in prison if they don't you know uh, show up for the draft or if, or if they don't pay their taxes or if they or if they if they use cocaine all those rules are aggression which are contrary to the nature of argumentation so they're all basically in, inconsistent inconsistent inco incoherent and uh, and can never be justified mm -hmm. they can never be argumentatively justified which means they can never be justified because all justification has to be argumentative. So that's Hoppe's argument in a nutshell. And so the only thing remaining would be capitalism or private property rights because only those are universalizable, as he says, in Kant's sense. So I've used a lot of high-level terms. Now, in the subsequent chapters, he goes into particular economic issues uh, like monopoly theory and things like that. So that's the book, and it's basically eye-opening. If someone was going to read it, I would suggest they read chapters one and two and seven and then the rest mm. if, if they didn't want to read it from beginning to end mm. that's an excellent <clears throat> introduction to the book excellent overview of the book so thank you for that um i'm just gonna echo back a few things here so one that last point you made um on truth discovery presupposing genuine dialogue or authentic dialogue you know, I just wrapped up a series on uh, Plato's Republic, and this is something that goes all the way back to Socrates. You know, he, the difference between sophistry and philosophy is sophistry is trying to impose some presupposed viewpoint, whereas philosophy is just engaged in this truth discovery process. Correct. Um, so we could say that socialism, as you said, defending socialism at all is inherently sophistic in a way that it doesn't correct it's not it's not sincere it's not, yeah, it's not it's a genuine sincere. argument i agree yes right. yes and then you mentioned the the two domains that mises uh bifurcated the world into that was really mind-blowing for me when i first read human action and the way the distinction i like to make there is you know most of us uh moderns kind of think in this materialist paradigm of matter you know a causes b cause and effect that is the realm of you know, empiricism, natural sciences, that's what they're trying to, to hone in on. But there is this whole other domain, which I like to call what matters, as opposed to matter, and that is the, the teleological domain, you know, Correct. the realm of uh, means and ends and human action and purpose. And in that domain, as you said, there are no constants in that teleological domain. So empiricism is not proper to that, right? You can't say that Every time we increase the, whatever it is, the minimum wage, that B will happen. It, it doesn't make sense because there's too many 
there's no constants, right? There's no constant relationships. Whereas we can say with pretty high degree of confidence, if we take water to zero degrees centigrade, it will freeze. You know, that's a constant relationship. So empiricism then, I guess, is improper to the domain of economics, uh, which is, and I use the term rationalism. Uh, I'm not sure mm -hmm. which term he uses here, but that's more proper to a domain where there are no constants. And rationalism is going, going to be dependent on axiomatic assumptions or presuppositions such as man must act being one or man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction all else being equal and right. you and he's he uh, the, the real economists are deducing from those axioms to give us some useful knowledge about the economic domain that an empiricist cannot do and pe this is this is hard for people to internalize but i think the the analogy to mathematics is pretty useful. You know, like if you look at Euclidean geometry, mm -hmm. when we say two parallel lines never touch, that doesn't mean we went out into nature and investigated right. all the parallel lines in the universe and then decided two parallel lines never touch. It's just an assumption we make about Euclidean geometry. So there's this whole system of knowledge is sort of set on this anchor. anchor the, you know, that's one of five, I think, anchor assumptions in Euclidean geometry. We're doing something similar in, in economics. And it's much, I think if you actually read, you read some Keynesian economics and you read some Austrian economics, you'll quickly see which one's sophistry and which one's more like philosophy. Yeah, I think uh, this is one reason why like uh, Hoppe and Mises, uh, they're sort of neo-Kantians because, um, so the, 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 the empiricists basically have this belief that um, anything that's uh, that's an a priori statement or put it this way anything that's a statement that is um 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 uh, that is not measurable can't say anything meaningful about the world because they don't believe in what 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 kant said is called a synthetic a priori like they basically think if you make a statement that can't be tested then it's going to be either nonsense or it's going to be a tautology like meaningless like all men are batch all all bachelors are men because by definition a bachelor is an unmarried man mm -hmm. so you could make that definition but it doesn't say anything about the way the world really is but um what kant showed was that there are synthetic a priori categories which means there's knowledge that we have which could not be falsified by an experiment but which is true knowledge and by the way ayn rand who said she hated kant had a similar uh, framework, but she had a different label for it, but she called them axioms. So like, for example, Ayn Rand said that we can know for sure certain things. We can know, for example, that, uh, well, even, even, even the, the art skeptic, uh, Descartes said, you know, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am, which means because I know that I think, cause I'm thinking I must exist. Like, so I know one thing, I know that I exist, even though his skepticism might not be warranted for the other things, at least he admitted we know one thing for certain that we exist and Ayn Rand would agree. But we also know more than that. We know that we know that uh, something outside of us exists because if you're aware, you're aware of something outside of yourself. So there's a you and there's a universe, right? Um, we can also know for sure that there are laws of causation and causality, and this gets back to Mises and his, his kind of neo-Kantian praxeology. Praxeology just means it was his word for the logic of action, and by that he just meant when we think about what humans do, and by the way, humans not as behaving causal physical like c collections of quarks that are just governed by the laws of physics, but human actors like, like us, people that have choice and goals and values um, – 
when people act, they, they, there's a blending of two different realms. Like they basically have to interact with the physical world because they have to act to try to change what's going to happen in the world. And they, to do that, they, they employ scarce means. Now, scarce means is not only your own body, but all these things in the world, these natural resources, these tools that we grab and we manipulate to divert the course of events, to make things change and to, to cause a new future to happen. That is the goal of our action, right? So in other words, we interact with the world we try to take advantage of what we understand the laws of causality are, even though that might be imperfect, but we know something, right? We know the, the basic facts about what things are available. We know we have some rough idea or we think we have an idea of what cause and effect would be. Um, and we also have goals which are not causal. Like, our, like It's like whatever my values and my preferences happen to be is what I want to happen. That's what drives me to act. So every action is imbued by both a purpose of act aspect in other words i have a purpose in my action I'm, I'm aiming at some at some goal or some end but to to achieve it i'm interacting in the causal world according to its rules as best i understand them so it's a blending of those two things but so to understand what people are doing we need to have two domains of phenomena that we're studying and you know you could say that theoretically you could view other people not as actors but as behaviors like you could view them as just objects like basically complicated meat robots. Um, maybe God does that, according to Mises, right? Maybe God knows what's going to happen. <clears throat> but we don't have that infinite knowledge, that omniscient knowledge, and we find it conceptually convenient to see other people that look similar to us, and they're roving around the earth doing things. It's, it's more convenient conceptually to categorize them as actors like we, we internally conceive of ourselves – so it's better to understand and predict what we're going to do, better to motivate them to cooperate with us and things like that. Um, so it's just a, a useful conceptual convention. But once you're in that convention, now I am – it's like you know, if, if you're fixing your car, you don't want to you – know, if, if your car stops running, you want to analyze it on the right macro level. You don't want to look at it as a cloud of quarks because it's just going to be a big equation on a computer screen like in the Matrix or something, and you wouldn't know what to do, right? Or if you just say it's a car, it's broken, that's too high level. That doesn't tell you what to do. you got to look at it at the medium level like, okay, the car is composed of different functional components, an engine, a drivetrain, a, you know, a transmission, a suspension system, fuel, wheels, all this. And then you identify which one is not working, and then you fix it, right? So you couldn't say, well, the car – you just fixed your carburetor, <laughs> but the car doesn't really have a carburetor. It's just a bunch of quarks. Like yeah, but I, I I conceptually classified it, understood it functionally as having these these isolated components called a carburetor, and that allowed me to understand it sufficiently to fix it and get it running again. So it's a useful concept, and likewise, um, it's it's I would say it's actually unavoidable so long as we're not God. Um, we we have to the only way to deal with other people is to regard them as people that is actors, and once you regard them as an actor that is someone having a purpose. Then you can't deny that they have choice because an actor means to choose what to do, and if people have choice, then th what they do is unpredictable. So that's why uh, empirical laws can't work, which is why the idea like of a uh, in psychohistory and Asimov's uh, foundation series, which is a great sci-fi series. But the idea that you can use statistics to predict what people are going to do in the aggregate is just wrong because people actually have choice and they act not just randomly, but they don't act according to causal laws and not in a in a like in, in an intensive sense that you could measure, right? You can't say, well, this guy uh, 
uh, two guys are both trying to, I don't know, score a basketball on a game of basketball. One guy wants it 3.2 times as much as the other guy. It doesn't make any sense. They both want to score the goal. That's all we can know. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant way to put it. Um, I like the, the idea of a proper level of conceptual analysis being necessary for problem solving, as you were saying with a the car there. So it is somewhat arbitrary at what level we choose to analyze ourselves or a situation or a tool, but it, it very much plays into the actual pragmatic outcome. Um, and, and, and you can know this just by, if you have a conversation with someone and you assume that they have no agency and you think they're just a meat robot and you know everything about them, you're not going to have a good conversation with that person, right? It's not going to go anywhere. There's no, there's no give and take. There's no, it's, 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 uh, it's totalitarian, right? To think that way. Well, imagine, imagine you you're a businessman and you, you're trying to make a profit by selling shoes. Okay. So you're trying to get in the minds of your possible customers to see what they want, right? So you're <laughs> to, to view them as robots, you just wouldn't succeed in interacting with people. You wouldn't predict what they're going to do. You wouldn't understand their character, their motivations. You wouldn't be able to be successful in your actions. Now, by the same token, that's on a sort of practical uh, level of interacting with other other actors, but on a normative or a moral level or a legal level, we, we find it useful in society uh, because most people prefer – and I think this is partly because of our, psychological, our, our social development, our evolution. We are empathetic creatures, and we're social creatures, which means that um, we are all self-interested. We want to preserve our life. That's what life does, but we're also social. We value other people too. Um, uh, maybe not as much, but you know, uh, most people would tend to live in a world where they're doing well, but also most of their neighbors are doing well and their family is doing well, right? Um, and they also have an, a sort of a, a rough understanding that peace and cooperation is one way to achieve that. And you also achieve the ability to have social interaction with people. You get to have friends and neighbors and live in society and live in civilization and have culture and you know uh, to live among other people. Um, so for that reason, most people tend to have sort of normal values about peace, and they would tend to they would tend to prefer a system that allows peace and prosperity to be possible, and for us to avoid, if possible, constant worrying and conflict and poverty and immiseration. And therefore, property rights emerge as a system of um, ways to allocate who can use the resources that are always going to be in dispute because by their nature they're scarce only one person can use them at a time so that's what property rights are and those tend to be the the rules that promote human survival which would be the first person who uses something is the owner because if the first person didn't have the right to use something that was unowned we would never leave the caves because we would not be able to use anything um so so that's the the homesteading rule right so, but the point is, to the extent that those rules succeed, that is to the extent that most people agree with them and voluntarily respect them, society succeeds and we flourish and we're better off. But there will always be some defectors, some abnormal people, some sociopaths, some psychopaths, some criminals who will, who will be willing to risk the rules. And at a certain point, you can't have a conversation with such a person. You can't try to persuade them with reason, so you have to regard them… Not necessarily as a meat robot, but you have to regard them as more like as a, as a as a as a as an animal or as a threat, 
as, or as Hoppe calls it, as a technical problem. <laughs> like it becomes not a moral problem. A moral problem would be if you're, you and your neighbors are all trying to decide what the just solution to a conflict is. So we sit down together and we reason it out. We, we refer to principles that we all agree to. We maybe go to a neutral third-party arbitrator, and we try to work it out. And that's how law emerges from the outcome of these different contests over time. Um, but if that's not possible because one person just refuses and just as doesn't care about your rights, is not willing to respect your rights, then you have to switch from a moral problem to a technical problem. And you have to regard him as now um, just like you would regard a lion or a tiger or a hurricane or a <clears throat> you know, pestilence or famine or disease. You, it's something that you have to figure out a technical solution to. So you might put locks on your door. You might carry a gun. You might shoot the guy, you know, but um, anyway. That's really interesting. I've never heard that. I haven't heard it put like that, that you transition from the moral domain to the technical domain when someone yeah. is essentially, they're refusing to engage in authentic dialogue, right? They're, they're being sophistic or they're, uh, leveraging their their physical power or other capabilities over you in some some manner of aggression, I suppose. And it, I I didn't realize that Hoppe studied under Rothbard, but that makes a lot of sense, seeing that a lot of this treatise appears to be centered on private property. Mm -hmm. uh, I did read on we had a series on the show on Rothbard's Ethics of Liberty, which is a, mm -hmm. another book that goes deep on private property being that sort of boundary between um, voluntary and involuntary worlds, right? Once you cross over into this involuntary domain, you violated the choice of others and you become, I guess, a technical problem in that way. And so it's, and I think uh, Hoppe goes into it somewhat here too, that it's the rules themselves, right? The property is kind of like the rule set. And that if you if there's an asymmetry of those rules where they're applied unequally between one group and another, yep. uh, you get something like socialism, right? This institutionalized form of aggression. And yeah. And, and part, part of there's sorry, two, two reasons for that in a sense. Um, um, so, so one is that um, no rule could ever be justified. That is not what's called universalizable. That's a Kantian rule. Um, and all that really means is you have to give a reason for the rule that you're proposing to some other person. And if you're basically simply saying, well, here's the rule I propose. I, you're going to be my slave, so I can hit you, but you can't hit me. Well, that's what Kant would call particularizable, which I would say is it ultimately is to give no reason at all. Like you're, you're just not giving a reason. You're, you're simply refusing to try to give a reason. So you're back to the, to the, to the state of war between people and people being technical problems. So unless you come up with a rule that's in, in theory acceptable to both sides, um, then it could never be justifiable because you couldn't justify that to any arbitrary potential number of, of, of participants in discourse. Um, anyway, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the problems with that, with that idea. Yeah, so if you universalize that particular rule, you'd end up with and uh, asymmetric rules, right? There'd be one tyrant that nobody could hit that could in turn hit everyone else. That obviously does not create a balanced world. Um, and another point that Rothbard made in that book that really struck with me is once you have this institutionalized aggression against private property, which is you know taxation, inflation, et cetera, you actually bifurcate society into the taxpayers, the people uh, paying the people being 
having their property predated and then the people receiving the value from that predation of private property, the tax receivers, I think Roth calls them. So it's, you're, you're making an inherently, a society that cannot be unified by definition, right? Because you've created a, this schism, this economic or even a moral, I guess, schism um, between them just by having asymmetric rules. So the ideal state would be to have these universalized rules level playing field, if you will, that everyone just plays by. Well, um, and remember, the whole purpose of these rules is to allow conflict to be avoided, okay? Right. So uh, any rule that you propose that generates conflict is contrary to the purpose of such rules. So if you, if you set up arbitrary classes of people, that is generating conflict, not allowing conflict to be solved. Um, look, so the basic thing is this. If you think about the context, some people criticize Hoppe's argumentation ethics by saying something like, well, obviously um, his theory is not right because you could imagine someone who has a slave and sits down and has an argument with him one night. So it's possible to argue with your slave, and he's still a slave. But of course, that's not Hoppe's argument. Hoppe's argument is that, that you could, you can't just, you can't justify this. So if the slave owner is holding a slave, he could have a conversation with them, but he's contradicting himself the whole time because he's, for the duration of the argument, he's giving the slave some kind of respect and all bodily autonomy at the same time that he's claiming to be on the slave's body. So he's 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 basically schizophrenic or incoherent. Um, the entire time. Now, what Hoppe's argument is, is that when you propose a norm, it has to be universalizable, which just means you have to give reasons. But that doesn't mean everyone has to be treated the same. You can treat people differently as long as you have an adequate reason, and that is why you have the right to self-defense. So you do have the right to use someone's body without their express consent if they're committing aggression against you. Like if someone's attacking me, I've got the right to to hurt his body to make him stop, even though he objects to that, right? Uh, so, and, and the and the argument would be the same argument that I have a right to my body, which implies that I've got the right to defend it, um, which implies that someone loses the right to their body when they start attacking me and they're committing an act of aggression. So you could argue with a slave, and it would it, it could be um, it could be coherent if the slave was justly enslaved. So, for example, if someone, you know, some some guy breaks into your house, they're killing all your your family members, and you 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 catch the guy and you subdue him and you tie him down. Uh, you know, let's say you're gonna you tie him down for a couple of days until you decide what to do with him. I mean, he's basically your slave during that time, and you might even enslave him to make him pay back uh, to make him pay restitution, or you might even kill him to 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 punish him for what he did. Um, you're treating him like a means, or like your property. But if you if you sat down and had an argument with them, you could justify that. You wouldn't be incoherent because you're not saying that you're treating you're treating likes unlike. You're treating unlikes unlike, right? So that's the question. Uh, so, but if for example, if I said, "Well, I'm a white guy, and I'm enslaving you because you're a black guy," the question is, and that is a difference, but is it a relevant difference, right? I would say it's a relevant difference if, if I'm enslaving you because you committed aggression and I didn't commit aggression, right? So, and it makes it's relevant because when I enslave you, I'm using force. And the fact that you were an aggressor meant you use force. So it's force against force. So it's relevant, clearly. Uh, this is what I argue in detail in my estoppel theory of rights, um, which you can find on my website. But um, 
But if someone is merely the, a different age or sex or ethnicity uh, or social status from you, that is not a relevant difference because whenever you make an argument in discourse, you're always implicitly uh, claiming rights for yourself, always. So you're always basically claiming some kind of self-ownership and property rights for yourself because you're claiming – your bodily autonomy rights, and you're claiming enough property rights to to survive to get there in the first place, right? Like the, the the material resources you use to live and to get there, and that you're standing on while you're having the argument. So you're claiming certain a certain set of rights for yourself. But the only thing we know about you, in abstract, is that you're a human actor. You're an intelligent, conscious human actor, and so you must be attributing rights to yourself for those reasons. If you're some kind of weird racist, you could say, well, because I'm a white man, I'm claiming a white man's rights or something like that. But you have to give a reason for that like because you're, you're actually having an argument with another person. So they're on the same level with you in terms of rational discourse and communication. Why, why are you trying to – you don't try to justify your rights to, uh, to a cricket. <laughs> you only do it to things right. that you think can, can respond to you in kind. So you're already admitting that this other – person the other participant in discourse is similar to you in some respects so the the first level of assumptions that your 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 participant could say well you're saying you have rights and you're denying them to me but for whatever reasons you have rights i have them too because we're both similar mm-hmm. and you would say well no we have different we have different skin color it's like yeah but what's what, what, yeah relevant. right so yeah. so i'm i'm black maybe i own you because you're white hmm. if mere difference means you own the other person then that doesn't solve conflict. It's not a type of rule grounded in the nature of things. So th- you and you made me think of this because you said the word arbitrary. You can't have arbitrary distinctions. They have to be grounded in the nature of things, and ha- they have to be relevant and germane to the topic under discussion. Mm. So that's why only aggression, only an act of aggression can justify treating someone as a means against their against their consent. But if someone has not done that, then you have no grounds for treating them differently than the rights you claim for yourself. Yeah, brilliantly said. Um, this whole idea of engaging in discourse with another is kind of like an implicit admission, right? That you both possess rationality, that you're engaging yes. with someone yes. on the rational level to even speak to someone and wait for a response is an admission that they possess a similar faculty. Yes. Um, and they, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's basically, so there is a justification for aggression, but there's no, there's no justification for aggression other than in self-defense, right? Someone would have well, to initiate I, it first. I wouldn't call it aggression then. I mean, I think the word aggression should be re, re, uh, um, reserved for the use of um, unconsented to or initiate the less why Randians and objective uh, libertarians talk about the non-aggression principle means you can't initiate the use of force. Mm-hmm. So I, what I would say is force can be force can be used against someone without their permission if they commit aggression, but it, in that case it's not aggression. It's it's mm-hmm. it's what I would call self-defense or the more general term is responsive force. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 idea is that initiated force is never justified. But force in response to initiated force or aggression is or can be justified as long as it's proportionate and contextually relevant. Um, right. Now, I, but I would say that even that is sort of an imprecise way of stating the more general rule would be um, that property rights means that 
the owner ha has the right to consent or to deny consent to others to use that resource. So consent is the ultimate issue. You alluded mm -hmm. to that with your word voluntary. Mm -hmm. um, I think voluntary is, um, you know, some libertarians say they're voluntarists. And I, I, uh, I appreciate the, um, what they're getting out there. But as a technical matter, um, I think the word consent is better than voluntary because consent recognizes your property rights. Voluntary just means um, you chose to do the action. So mm. in a technical sense, like just the word, the way the words work and the way the law works, um, if, if, someone co if someone coerces you, your actions are still voluntary. Like mm -hmm. you're, 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 you're responding right. to the limited choice you've been given. Like if someone says, give me your wallet or I'm going to blow your head off and you hand the wallet, it's not an involuntary act. Like if you have a seizure or something, right. it's a voluntary act. It's just that it's coerced. So I would say it's not consent. It's not consensual because the, the consent is not meaningful because you've been coerced. So that's, that's the key thing. It's cons so I would say, I mean, I would, if I was going to rename libertarianism, I would call it consensualism, consensualism. instead of voluntarism. Right. Although I, I, I that's a, that's just a, a, a quibble or a nitpick, but um, yeah, but that's a subtle distinction that does make a lot of sense, uh, especially yeah. in that example you just gave with the seizure. That would be something that's involuntary, right? Involuntary, right, um, right? Just like when the doctor taps your knee with a hammer and your leg kicks out, that's that's a behavior, not an action, right? Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. That's what gets to the dualism thing. Now, yeah. I do think most most libertarians, when they say voluntary, what they mean is consensual. consensual. Yeah. When they say that was involuntary, what they mean is you were coerced. But just yeah. just like force is not always wrong if if it's in response to aggression, coercion is not always wrong. Um, uh, just like violence is not because coercion simply means to use force to compel someone to do something. But mm -hmm. again, if someone is trespassing on my property, I might coerce him into leaving. <laughs> right, there's nothing wrong with it. The, but uninitiated coercion exactly. cannot be justified. Yeah, aggressive. Yeah. I mean, if it's aggression, that's the problem. If it's if it's uh, yeah. So mm -hmm. if you coerce someone, if you threaten someone, um, uh, and and they haven't committed aggression against you, then that's that's when it becomes unjustified. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. 
Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Let me ask you this before we jump in here. Um, this whole idea of uninitiated force or coercion, I guess, not being justifiable. Doesn't this imply that there, there has to be some arbiter of who aggressed against who or whose property is who? Is this, is this where the state actually emerges is from this? Uh, it seems to me like a necessity for some arbiter in, in these <clears throat> conflicts. I don't think in theory it's not. I think ultimately the arbiter is our reason. Okay. Um, now, the, the problem with the state is the state can't do that job because the state is itself criminal. <laughs> so it's impossible for the state to, to fulfill that role because to just to exist, the state is violating these very rules that it claims to be the arbiter of. So it's, it's not possible to have a state be that arbiter. That might be the excuse they use and the propaganda they use. Uh, now, I think as a practical matter, people would tend uh, put it this way. You're not going to have civilization in society unless there is some kind of widespread agreement on, on the common sense uh, values that we've been discussing here. Um, now, and there has been because we're a social species and we've developed empathy and we have some degree of reason and we have some degree of uh, a desire for consistency in our reasoning. I think the big problem is economic illiteracy is so rampant that people – Although they're well-intentioned, they don't understand that the laws and policies that they think they favor have the opposite results that they think they do. Uh, one reason I think economic literacy is so important. But um, you're not going to have any kind of civilization or society unless it's, it's a widespread norm adopted in society uh, to respect each other's rights. It just won't work. Um, but luckily, we have that. But I, So I think that what happens is over time, people – that have this predisposition towards peace and prosperity and some empathy for each other, some degree of socialization in society. Um, they tend to learn things from history and from, from their communities and their traditions. And over time, different nuances and rules of thumb evolve. And one would be like everyone would realize that um, it's risky to be the judge in your own case, right? Now, if you have to defend yourself and there's no other even the, even the common law, even the law today allows you to defend yourself if you don't have time to call the cops. Like everyone recognizes in, in emergencies, if you have nothing else you can do, you have to defend yourself. But in general, if you run around um, d d enforcing your own rights, there's a danger of bias. There's a danger of over over punishment. There's a danger of being a judge in your own case. So I think that what would happen is – and there's also the knowledge that there's utility in both people that have a dispute – who are reasonable and have a reasonable dispute, having a predisposition towards letting a neutral third party hear it. That's where the arbitration comes in. But that could just be the wise men in the village, and of course they, they finally become kings, and then kings take over, and that's how the state might emerge as a historical fact. But um, um, this willingness to go to the, the, the community's sense of justice and to plead your case and to prove your case would tend to start being part of an expected norm. So you could see that someone who always just ignores the legal system, he goes off and he enforces his own judgments on his own. People are going to tend to um, regard him as, as not 
uh, very cooperative and, 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 and risky. And I think he's going to pay a price. He'll be ostracized. He won't be able to get insurance easily. So over time, private institutions and practices would emerge that would guide people towards a tendency towards if when you can go to go to a court or go to an arbitral tribunal uh, and settle your disputes peacefully and reasonably. Right. Um, so I think that's how arbitration would emerge. And then over time, the rules that emerge from these different um, uh, historical settings and these traditions and these practices that becomes the body of law and then people can kind of more or less rely upon that because they know that that body of law is going to be dipped into and relied upon when there's a future dispute and so they can use that to predict uh, to to guide their behavior to have more predictability about what the future law would be and then law can incrementally change over time because as people learn more things and as we have more and more decisions and and, um, and society changes so and that's a really complicated, interesting, but complicated topic. But yeah, and that topic, that's we, kind of my take on it. No, that's a great, great take. We, you and I went into more depth on that in our last episode together, where we examined something more like English common law tradition, which is discovered law versus Correct. legislated law, right? Someone just Correct. wrote it and imposed it by fiat. Um, so if audience is interested, they could check out uh, our prior episode together. We went in depth on that topic. Um, following a paper you wrote about it and that's uh, what i mean by private law i mean by private law i mean the the law that emerged in these sort of decentralized um uh law discovery systems yeah. um the roman law and the, and the and the common law they were both intertwined with the state so they're not perfect mm -hmm. but they were not seen as um a legislature announcing what they think the law is and mm -hmm. what they're going to make the law be it was more a judges trying to uh, trying to do the right thing, trying to do the just result in a in an actual dispute between two or more actual people having a contest or a conflict between them, and trying to come up with a fair result by by re by reverting to these kind of established principles of you know the timeless principles of justice like right. uh, first use and contract and. And, and tort and assault and aggression and those kinds of things. So that that body of law is what we call the private law, and it's distinct from what you can call you can think of a statutory law or public law. Public law would be the law the state claims that's unique to itself, like and it sets right. itself apart, like a bunch of gods who are not subject to our law. You know, yeah. it's wrong for you and I to commit murder or theft, but when the government does it, they just call it war mm -hmm. or taxation. jail or or taxation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. To put a button on that, this decentralized emergent private law, it's also much more information rich, right? Because it's the there have been thousands and thousands of these disputes resolved over time. And then the the measures put in place to resolve them that people in the present are relying upon. So you're kind of like drawing upon the wisdom of your ancestors to some extent versus some guy currently in power signed a document that says you will do this or yes. I will hurt you. It's right. more information rich for, for many for many reasons. Number one, um, all these rules in the private law are, are fashioned when there's a real dispute between real people. So it's not just some it's not just a decree made by a, mm -hmm. a committee, the legislature. Um, and and when the when the court hears the case, they can hear witnesses, they can hear evidence, they can hear testimony, and they so they they get a sense of what actually custom and tradition was what what the relevant information was and that informs the rule that is that is that is formed um it could also 
vary from region to region. Like in one country, it might be different because people have different social habits or whatever. So it can, it can, it can, it can conform. It can, it can adapt and vary. Uh, it's not a one size fits all thing necessarily. Maybe it's different. In, you know, maybe the age of consent is different here than it is in another in another region. Whereas when when you have a central um, sovereign that announces what the law is. Oh, and furthermore, the judge always tries to make his rules compatible with what's gone before. So the law grows organically mm-hmm. and it's more or less consistent because, you know, unless you see something that was so egregious, you want to overturn it. And that's called, you know, uh, overturning a previous law. But stare decisis or case law or precedent limits that. So basically it grows organically and one piece keeps getting added and it's more or less a co- coherent, consistent body of law. Whereas statutes, there's no reason. First of all, they're often one size fits all. They're, they cover the entire country, even though conditions could vary. Um, they're not in response to an actual dispute. They're just policy preferences of these people. And there's no reason. There's nothing that keeps these laws from being internally consistent with each other. Like one statute could contradict another, and this happens all the time. So, for example, uh, well, the Thirteenth Amendment is a good example. Everyone says, "Oh, slavery has been." Outlawed. Well, if you read it, it says slavery is outlawed except as punishment for a crime, and the government can make whatever they want to be a crime. So mm. that's why we have millions of people in prison right now in the U.S. for drug crimes or whatever. They're basically slaves, so slavery has not been outlawed. Right. But another – a better example would be, say, uh, copyright in the, in, the, in the First Amendment. So copyright law says you can't publish this book. <laughs> right. First Amendment says government shouldn't restrict freedom of the press. Okay. <laughs> the, the Supreme Court says – Oh, the law's intention here. <laughs> what they mean is the law is completely schizophrenic and incoherent. Same thing with antitrust law and patents. Uh, antitrust law says it's illegal to have a monopoly or to try to form a monopoly, monopolization. Um, the patent law says the federal government is granting people monopolies. <laughs> so if you, you can use your patent rights to get a monopoly, but if you try too hard… That's called patent abuse, and now you're getting in trouble with the antitrust statutes because they basically they're incompatible with each other because Which these are all- just decrees of, of two of two independent congresses that have nothing to do with each other, and so they they're not natural law, they're not organic, they're not they're not justice. So there's no reason to expect them to be compatible with each other any more than you know the United States law on gun guns is going to be compatible with with China's laws on guns. Mm-hmm. It's just commands of two different sovereigns, but even in the U.S. One Congress to the next, or they're two different Congresses, or even the same Congress might pass incoherent, internally inconsistent laws because they're right. not really laws. And this one point I also make, and this some some of my more, I won't say conservative, but my more moderate libertarian friends, like Nick Sarwark, the former LP chair, one time told me that this was stupid that I said. Uh, and what I said was that federal in the United States, federal judges are not really judges. And I did. I wasn't making the statement that I don't like federal law, and I'm an anarchist, and I'm a minarchist libertarian. That I don't like the EPA and and the uh, and the Department of Education, and therefore I'm not going to give these judges the title of judge. That wasn't my point at all. My point was that unlike state court judges, who are also statists because they work for the state, but they're largely trying to develop the common law, okay, which is real law, mm-hmm. even though it's not. Perfect and it's flawed. But federal judges have no common law. What the federal judge's job is is to interpret the Constitution and federal statutes. That's it. Has nothing to do with justice. So their job is, I mean, their job function is not to do justice. It's not to have a dispute between two parties and to try to do the just thing. Their job is to 
when you have a dispute between two parties to apply what's written down on a piece of paper by a committee that works for the same government as they are, right? So there's no reason to expect that those words written down on paper are aimed at justice or compatible with justice. It's just the, the, the federal judge's job is just to read it and apply it. Mm. They're, more so they're, they're just a function. They're not a judge. They're not doing justice. They're trying to apply a rule. Right. So they're they put on a robe like a real judge, but they're not real judges. Right. They're functionaries or interpreters rather than actual actually rendering justice at all. Yeah. Imagine if you have like, I don't know, the, the Communist Party in China and you have these uh these these political hacks that are so-called judges. They're just carrying out the sentences of the of the criminal regime. Are, are they really judges trying to do justice? Right. So I'm on page 14 in the introduction. And Hoppe writes, it will be demonstrated that the property theory implicit in socialism does not normally pass even the first decisive test. The necessary, if not sufficient condition required of rules of human conduct, which claim to be morally justified or justifiable. This test as formulated in the so-called golden rule or similarly in the Kantian categorical imperative requires that in order to be just, a rule must be a general one applicable to every single person in the same way. The rule cannot specify different rights or obligations for different categories of people, one for the redheaded and one for the others, or one for women and a different one for men. As such, a particularistic rule naturally could never, not even in principle, be accepted as a fair rule by everyone. Particularistic rules, however, of the type, I can hit you, but you are not allowed to hit me, are, as will become clear in the course of this treatise, at the very base of all practiced forms of socialism. Not only economically, but in the field of morals too, socialism turns out to be an ill-conceived Ill system of social organization. And he goes on to write, it will be demonstrated that the property theory implicit in capitalism not only passes the first test of universalization, but it turns out to be the logical precondition of any kind of argumentative justification. Whoever argues in favor of anything, and in particular in favor of certain norms as being fair, must implicitly at least presuppose the validity of the property norms implicit in capitalism to deny their validity as norms of universal acceptability and argue in favor of socialism is thus self-contradictory. Now that's sort of a, a, we talked about a lot of that in our intro there, um, but just gives you a taste for his uh, precise yet dense prose, as you mentioned as well, um, conveying a lot of meaning in, in few words. Um, so is there anything there that you think you would add to or, or that we didn't cover earlier? Well, just just to highlight, so he, he does it here, but um, so he views uh, universalizability as a first sort of test or filter. That's why he says it's uh, in the beginning, it's necessary if not sufficient for any norm. So just to make any – propose any norm – by the way, you and I were talking earlier about argumentation and this kind of stuff. You don't need argumentation per se to discover truth. So, for example, if you imagine Crusoe alone on an island, you know he's going to learn some things. 
he might have an internal discourse with himself, but it's not really the same kind of discourse where he's respecting rights. There's no normative aspect to that. There's no norms at all. There's no rules. There's no um, there's no uh, other people's rights to worry about. There's no property rights that can be violated because there's no other people. It's only when you have other people in society and you seek to formulate norms that specify who gets to use what. In that case, that's when you have to have discourse among petite people because the rule can affect more than one person. So you're tr if you're trying to justify the norm, that is you're trying to find a justified norm to justify it, that's when you have to have interaction with other people, at least in principle, to justify it. And so his point is nothing can be justified except um, – so we're talking primarily about norms here. So that's what Tom's talking about. So what he's saying is that any norm you propose couldn't even possibly be valid if it's not universalizable. So if it's just I can hit you, but you can't hit me. So you have to give reasons basically. Now, what Hans points out somewhere else in the book, I can't remember where, but he says, look, maybe some clever guy could reformulate his rules into a generalizable rule. But in that case, it still has to be consistent with the norms presupposed by argumentation too. So he's saying, he's saying that there's two ways you could knock out a proposal. One is if it's just simply particularizable, like it's not a general rule. Like and then it doesn't even formally pass the test you have to pass to be an acceptable norm um, or justifiable norm. But then second, it can't contradict whatever is presupposed as true by the people arguing in the first place, right? Um, so that's where he says that that's what he means when he says um, um, in the second thing you read, it will be demonstrated that the property theory implicit in capitalism not only passes the first test which means it's got to be formally universalizable. But it turns out the logical precondition of any kind of argumentative justification uh, whatsoever. So that's why any socialistic norm always fails because it's inconsistent with the capitalist norms that you've already presupposed by engaging in discourse itself. So in a sense, his entire proof is it's it's like uh, it's like uh, you know what an, an ostensive def an, an ostensive definition is a, it's like a, it's not a definition in terms of other words it's a definition by pointing like oh, you like could say um, yeah so you yeah. could say like uh, someone you could say red is a concept and someone says what's red and you could like you could point at a red bar and you say look see that red bar <laughs> red is right there like you're giving you're, you're pointing. I think Hans's argument is almost like direct – it's like an extensive definition in the sense that he's simply directing people's attention to the fact that they and anyone else genuinely, sincerely engaged in argumentation is already presupposing certain core values. Okay, He's not justifying those values. He's directing your attention to the fact that people hold them and that you yourself hold them. Now… There's reasons people hold these values. They hold them for evolutionary reasons, I believe, like we're a social species. Uh, if you're not defective, you have some kind of empathy for other people. So that's why we tend to value peace and prosperity and harmony and trade and cooperation over violent conflict. But the fact is that we do, and that is what's motivating us to engage in the, in, in, in the attempt to find norms in the first place. You wouldn't be trying to find a norm to settle disputes if you didn't care about some kind of peaceful resolution to a conflict, right? Mm. So he's directing our attention to the fact that people do hold this. So he, well, all he's telling you is, listen, you can say you're a socialist, 
but it's incompatible with other values that you also hold and, you, and, it, and that you can't deny that you hold. In fact, you hold them right now as we're speaking here as civilized people, and you're not trying to hit me over the head, right? So he's just pointing out to you that you, you're, you, you're holding two incompatible views at the same time, so, so they can't both be right. So right. then the question is, well, which one's right? Well, it, it can't be the socialist norm because you can't justify that in argument. You'd have to you would have to drop your peaceful your peaceful view and just become a criminal, a psychopath. So yeah. that, that that's how I would elaborate on, on those, that little passage there. Yeah, um, I think he goes on in other highlights I have later on in the book. There's a couple of times where he says things like the terms don't matter here. And, you know, I, I think we have to be careful because people might be like, what do you mean the terms don't matter? The words don't matter, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying something more like you just highlighted that there's a, you're, you're doing, I guess when you're engaging in a certain action, right? You're engaging in discourse with someone else that the very action of engaging in that discourse speaks louder than any words you could possibly formulate to the contrary, right? You could say, I'm a socialist and I believe in no private property as by the way, you know, like these crazy fuckers in the world economic form are doing today. They're saying no more private property, all of this, but um, you can't say that and it not contradict the action of engaging in actual discourse. So it's, it's, it's not a tenable position, I guess, in general. Yeah. I've got a, uh, um, I've got a, a website, a page on my website. It's called quote. If you go to quotes, you just look for quotes on the right sidebar and that that'll take you to something called quotes on the logic of Liberty. And I collected like uh, lots of common aphorisms and wisdom over the ages, which echo the common sense, moral intuitions that we all have, which, which is like you just said about uh, actions speak louder than words. I mean, there's actually, there's a nice quote. It was, it was in the Freeman, I think a long time ago. I, I can't find it here, but it's something like, uh, what you do speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying, right? And that's that's the, the, the essence of, of my estoppel. So in my estoppel argument for rights, it's sort of complementary to Hoppe's argumentation ethics, but it's more comes from a legalistic point of view because I was in law school studying this common law doctrine of estoppel. And estoppel says um, – well, a brief, brief diversion. In, in the common law – we think of the common law as the rules that develop in, in the courts, but there was an alternative set of courts called the equity courts, and equity sort of means fairness. And like, if you if you if, if because of the way the legal system worked, you got screwed, and the or you didn't have an available remedy, you would go to the king's courts, the equity courts, and say, "Would you please make up a remedy for me here to get me out of this?" And in 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 the in, in the service of justice, they would come up with these things. Like I think that's what habeas corpus. I think habeas corpus came out of that. Um, um, and so estoppel is an equitable, equitable doctrine that emerged, and what it said was this. Um, estoppel means to a stop, and a stop just means to stop or prevent, prevent someone from saying something or from, or from making a certain argument. And, the, and, and the, the classic case would be this. In the common law, you had a, a, a body of contract law that, that developed, and the contract law – says that you can have a binding or legally enforceable obligation if certain conditions are met, like um, you know, if there's adequate terms that are made, if there's an offer with certain terms, if there's acceptance by the other party, if both parties have capacity to accept, you know, one's not 12 years old or whatever, and if there's no fraud or duress or coercion, um, 
if there's no er serious errors or mistakes, um, and if there's consideration, like that's a common law doctrine. Consideration, uh, which I don't think is a libertarian idea, but anyway, it, it means that for the contract to be binding, both both people have to give something up to the other. That's that's why you'll see the remnant of that in today's contracts. You know, someone will pay a dollar or ten dollars, and they don't even actually pay it; they just say it. They're trying to mimic the form of consideration, so the contract will be binding, right? Um, but there are some cases where one of those conditions fails and the contract would not be enforceable in court. But the courts of equity might step in and say, well, we're going to, we're going to prevent the, the person trying to get out of the contract by making one of these excuses. We're going to prevent him from uttering that excuse because it would be unfair. So a, a good example would be this. Um, um, I'm at home one day, and some painter shows up. He's been hired by my neighbor to paint my neighbor's house, but the painter shows up to my house on accident, okay? And he starts to paint my house. And I realize what's going on, um, that I'm getting, a, I'm getting a free paint job, basically. So I don't say anything to the guy because you know I want to get a free paint job. So I just wave at him, and I let him keep going. Now, later on, the, the painter sends me a bill for $1,000. And I don't – I say, well, I don't have to pay you because we didn't have a contract, Okay, which is technically true. So in the common law courts, I would win, and I would get the, the free paint job. Um, but the guy might say – he might bring up the defense of estoppel, and he would say, well, because you knew I was making an honest mistake, and you saw me do it, and you let me go ahead, and you acted as if we had a contract… And I relied upon that to my detriment. I relied upon your, your behavior to my detriment. Um, you can't now say that we didn't have a contract because you acted like we had a contract before, so your actions have to be consistent over time. So you're stopped from saying that we didn't have a contract. In other words, my defense would be I don't have to pay you because I don't have a contract. That's my defense because the, the prima facie burden of proof is say, made by the guy making the claim. I painted his house. We had a contract. And my defense is no, we don't have a we don't have a contract. Well, the court would say you're a stop. You, we're not going to let we're not going to hear you to say that. Okay, so right. you can see there's an element of justice and fairness and why that rule emerged, right? So what struck me about about that rule was that's sort of the essence behind the libertarian idea of the symmetry of force. Like we don't oppose the use of force; we just oppose the initiated use of force. But if someone initiates it, then a force can be used in response. So force in, in response to force, there's a symmetry there. Likewise, if I punish someone for selling a book or for being the wrong religion, I'm using force in response to something that's not force. So there's, there's an asymmetry there. That's why. So I thought to myself, well, um, that that something along those lines can be used to argue for libertarianism. Right, and I, that's what I worked into a theory. And my theory is basically that um, the reason we have rights is that the person we're claiming to enforce our rights against is a stopped from objecting to it. Because <clears throat> when I have a right, that means I have a property right, and I can enforce it with force. And the force is going to be directed against someone who uh, used my property without my permission. And if he objects to me using force to punish him, let's say, then now he's claiming rights in his own body. But that's incompatible with his previous stance when he when he used my property without my permission. 
he acted as if permission is not needed. So he was sort of laying down the rule that it's okay to use someone's resource without their permission. So now he can't object to that rule being reflected back upon him. So again, there's a certain symmetry there, mm -hmm. and that's why I, I, I draw on Hoppe's argumentation ethics to complement uh, the, way, the way that I argue for rights there too. Yeah, that's really cool. I've never heard that example used, and it, it does seem that justice in a very philosophical sense is closely related to this concept of symmetry. Um, yeah. It also comes up in proportionality. Uh, again, in yes. Rothbard's Ethics of Liberty, it's like if you shoot someone for stealing a piece of gun, of gum, rather, sorry, that's not proportional, right? It's the, the crime, the punishment needs to be proportional to the crime um, for justice to be rendered. So that's, that's all really interesting. Um, I will read one more excerpt here. This is at the conclusion of chapter one. Uh, and sort of lays down where this book is headed. Hoppe writes, it will be argued that contrary to much that has been written in the economics literature on monopoly and public goods, neither problem exists, or if they did exist, would still not suffice in any meaningful sense to prove any economic deficiency in a pure market system. Rather, a capitalist order always, without exception and necessarily so, provides in the most efficient way for the most urgent wants of voluntary consumers, including the areas of police and the courts. With this constructive task completed, the argument will have been brought full circle and the demolition of the intellectual credibility of socialism morally and economically should be complete. So <clears throat> I think that, he was, again, he was just kind of outlining uh, where this book's headed, which you did for us earlier, but that's the aim, I think, ultimately, is this, this demolition of socialism morally and economically. Well, so. what, what he's getting at here is – so he's really relying upon his, his hardcore immersion into the Austrian view of subjective uh, – of the nature of value as being subjective because um, one of the standard arguments for the state is that there are certain you – know, there are private goods, which is what the free market economy deals with, but there are public goods. Um, and by the way, this is an argument for intellectual property too. Um, so public goods are things that um, uh, where you can't exclude people from the benefit of it and also that are usually non-rivalrous, like uh, uh, one person using it um, doesn't diminish another person's using it. So because of those special goods, they wouldn't be produced on a free market because there's no incentive for someone to produce them because you can't because you can't exclude people from the benefit of it. They wouldn't pay for it. Right, um, like a, the lighthouse used to be the classic example. So this is the argument for for defense of of a country because, like, if you have if you have a government that defends, you know, ninety people out of a hundred, then the other ten get defended for free. They can be free riders and they don't have to pay, but they still get the benefit of it. And so they wouldn't pay if it was voluntary because why would they? So then you wouldn't have self defense and blah blah blah. So the argument of the state is that. So what Hoppe explains is that uh, there are several problems with that, and that is, number one, there is no such thing as – just like, just like goods don't have an intrinsic value, right? which is the, another problem with a, a lot of monetary theory. They, they, they say, oh, Bitcoin doesn't have intrinsic value unlike gold. Well, gold doesn't have – nothing has intrinsic value. What, right. what they're trying to say in Bitcoin is that Bitcoin doesn't have a non-monetary use value, which is true, but it's irrelevant. It doesn't need to have a non-monetary use value, but um, – <clears throat> um, 
but you know, Peter Schiff and these guys, they talk, they talk about intrinsic value. And they, so, and they use that to say that, oh, gold is backed by something unlike Bitcoin. And you know, my response to that would be nothing, no money is ever backed by anything because money, whatever, whatever commodity in society, whether it's a, a digital commodity like Bitcoin um, or, um, or a real commodity, a physical commodity like gold, or even a fiat money like the dollar, whatever's money is some, some commodity of more or less fungible units that have a value because they're part of the monetary network, right? In other words, they have a value because they're money. Right. And that value is always, if, it, if, it's a, if it's a commodity like gold, that value is always uh, uh, far and above the underlying non-monetary use value of the commodity. So I don't know what the numbers are, but if gold was the world's money and there was no fiat monies and it was just gold, um, gold had gold had some kind of ornamental value in barter days, and then it became money for obvious reasons. Its value is now much greater than it used to be because it's useful in trade, right? It's because it, it's money. Yes. Yeah. So let's say ninety percent, ninety five percent, ninety eight percent of the value of gold is because it's money. So if if it got supplanted by I don't know copper or diamonds or Bitcoin one day and collapsed and stopped being used as, as gold, it would lose ninety percent of its value. It would just revert to its non monetary use value. So if you had all your wealth in gold, you would lose most of it if it stopped being used as money. So it's not backed by anything, and the dollar is not backed by anything. It's backed by the FDIC insurance promise, but that can only be fulfilled in the extremes by the government just printing more money, which would just lower the purchasing power. So this is it's it's literally impossible to guarantee or to have a backing of any money. In my in this is my opinion. Anyway, what Hoppe argues is that um, just as goods don't have an intrinsic value, they don't have an intrinsic value because value is a subjective phenomenon. Value is not really a property of things. It's 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 more like the way we conceptualize the fact that people have preference for things, and we demonstrate that in action. Um, so when you act to achieve something, or you're showing that you value that thing, there's no intensity. There's no number on that. There's no in, in, there's no um, uh, uh, number, uh, no cardinal number you can attach to it, which is one reason why utilitarianism is not possible. So the point is this: when we classify certain goods as being consumer goods or capital goods, or as being public goods or private goods, that all has to do with the, the subjective evaluations and mental classifications that private actors place upon them. And those things are never fixed, and they vary from person to person. They vary over time. <clears throat> so there's no such thing as a good that is a public good instead of a private good. There's no such thing as a good that is a capital good instead of a consumer good. That's just the, the evaluation placed upon it by acting human users. And because goods can't have this quality, then the entire theory of public goods makes no sense and breaks down. And by the way, that's the argument for intellectual property too. The argument is that intellectual property or knowledge is a public good because once you reveal knowledge to the world, like in an invention or in a book or something like that, um, it's non-rivalrous because any number of people can use the knowledge at the same time without diminishing anyone else's use. And it's, and it's non-excludable because once the information becomes public, you can't stop people from copying it. Right now, most of us think that's a good thing. That it's good that we have more and more knowledge every generation. This is why the human race is more successful, and we know more than our ancestors because we have more and more technical knowledge about the world, more engineering recipes, more scientific knowledge, more knowledge of causal laws, more literature and culture, 
and other artistic works to build upon. It makes us richer and in, enriches the human experience. This is like one of the best things about about living in the in the world of scarcity is that there are two important ingredients to human action. When you have successful human action, you require the access to scarce means, which are finite and limited, and there can be conflict over those. But you also need knowledge to guide your actions. Your knowledge guides what ends you pursue and how you use means to achieve those ends. And the more technical knowledge that we have, the more efficient our actions become, the more effective they become. So we're richer now, not because we have more mean, more technical stuff. The earth is still a finite ball of stuff that we had 5,000 years ago, but we're richer because we have more knowledge. So it's a good thing that we can learn from each other and spread knowledge. And yet you have these Chicago types and these, these, uh, these uh, conventional economists who bemoan the fact that knowledge is a public good. In other words, it's non-rivalrous. means everyone can use it at once. That's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. I mean, if everyone could have, a, a, you know, the same car, use the same car at the same time, it would be good, not bad. Um, and also that it's not excludable. Like you can't stop people from using it. Well, yeah, if you, if you reveal information to the world, people can learn from it and copy it. Um, but anyway, intellectual property law is, 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 is another tool, a status tool meant to solve the problem, the so-called problem of public goods that knowledge is a public good so it's just a it's just a special case of the general idea of public goods that hapa seeks to demolish here but in any case what he's really going at here is the the central justification for the state being that you need the state to provide public goods of defense and courts and police that wouldn't be injustice that would not be provided um, without the state. And of course, the state has gotten into a hundred other games in the meantime, communications and education and roads, you know, and uh, 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 pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, you know, meat, meat, meat quality, <laughs> you, you name it. Uh, so which are none of which are public goods. Yeah, that's well said. Um, you, you bring up a, a really important point here that also you know, percolates throughout all of the libertarian literature, which is that value is ordinal, not cardinal, right? So Correct. it's first, second, third, not I value this 33, this 28, that is, there's, it's nonsensical. Um, and, the, and the other thing I guess there is that value can really only be understood when demonstrated through action, right? When someone's Correct. engaging in an action, they are implying that they value whatever said action is above uh, their alternatives, let's say, and that's and that's where the economic concept of opportunity cost comes in. Opportunity mm -hmm. cost is whenever you engage in an action, there's certain things you can't, you you've chosen not to pursue, but by presumption, you valued those things less than what you did decide to go for. Yeah, and this is relatively new, right? This is mid 1800s marginalism or the marginal theory of value. I think is when it was when it came about. I believe in the late 1800s, it was um, um, Karl Manger, the founder mm -hmm. of the Austrian school, and um, I think Leon, Leon Walross, Wal Walross, mm -hmm. and Stanley, I'm probably mispronouncing Jevons, J-E-V-A-O-N-S. Mm -hmm. I think all three of them sort of came up with the same idea in different, uh, probably different vocabulary around the same time. Uh, just like Leibniz and Newton came up with the calculus around the same time, and uh, which is another proof that pat the patent system makes no sense because inventions and new and innovative ideas come about when the time has come like when all the preceding knowledge has made it ripe for discovery by the next 
the next generation of thinkers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, what's that quote? There's nothing more unstoppable than an idea whose time has come. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and the, so that's also really important and that I think that also led ec economists to resolve the water diamond paradox where you started evaluating yes. Yes. how we value things at the margin, right? It's not yes. how much, how much do I value water or how much do I value yes. diamonds? It's like the incremental unit of water or unit of diamonds. How does that fit into my internalized hierarchy of evaluation? Um, and this, so that's all really important. I'm sure we'll touch on that many more times. This, this public good conception thing is really, really strange to me as well, because it seems like, you know, you can't draw a bright line around a public good, whereas you can with private goods. You know, you say like your own body, there's a distinct physical interior versus exterior. Uh, you know, as you extend that self-ownership into the world with your property, there's, there are things, you know, uh, rivalrous and excludable assets, I guess, that you own. Um, they're very distinct. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a high fidelity boundary to these things. But when you go into public goods, like, what does that mean? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's ephemeral, right? And in that, in that ephemerality, if that's even a word, a lot of political rhetoric gets injected, right? They start saying, oh, this is for the national defense or for the greater good or for whatever yep. public, whatever public property they want to pull into it. And it just, as, as decided by us, your rulers, yes, as, the, as we decide. The, yeah. So when, when the, the lines get blurred, I guess my point would be that it introduces a much greater opportunity for the sophistry or rhetoric of statist to just say almost whatever they want to some extent and mislead people with these, with these concepts. So there's, there's not a clear, there's a very clear conceptual distinction for private property that does not, in my estimation, exist for public goods or public property at all. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, I think that uh, the reality is that the declaration of something as a public good, which gives the government the excuse to take power, is effectively just a rewriting of the rules of private ownership. So when, when the government takes power, they basically assume the right to use their courts and their monopoly on, on law and their force they, they, they wield with their enforcers um, to control how you use your property or to take it from you in form of taxes. So it's really just a redistribution of private property from the natural owner um, to the state uh, in using public goods as just the excuse that uh, to do it. Um, and what and there's actually kind of an analogy to what this this the diamond paradox you were bringing up because um, in public goods you have this sort of uh, this abstract kind of unrealistic argument that well we need defense or something like that we need courts of law and we need public roads and we need education. We need these things. And so the government needs to provide them. It's just like not connected to anything. How do we know we need them? Whereas um, with private property and with actual voluntary trades, we, we see what people think that they need because they're acting based upon that. <clears throat> and by the same token, before the marginal revolution in value, the reason the diamond water thing was a paradox is like there was sort of this disconnected um, attempt to understand society as a whole and say, well, why would people value diamonds more than water? Because we can all see, like if we just look at society as this organic whole, we can all see that water is useful, but diamonds really aren't, aren't useful. So it doesn't make any sense. But when you start thinking in terms of human action and from the individualistic, this is why 
Austrianism, one of the characteristics of it is called methodological individualism. You, you understand the consequences of human action from the point of view of the people that are acting, the individuals, right? So whenever there's a choice made, it's always by a human actor in a given context, and it's always among the things at hand, and that's always marginal. In, in other words, <coughs> you already have a certain supply of things at your disposal. And whatever you're thinking about getting rid of or acquiring is always the next one on the list. Um, and so uh, if you have water, plenty of water at your disposal, even though water in absolute terms is useful, the next, the next cup of water is not is plentiful. So it's not, it's not economically that, that valuable. Um, it wouldn't be that expensive <laughs> basically. Whereas diamonds are very rare, and people like them for subjective reasons because of ornamentation or whatever. And so because they're rare and people like them, they're going to tend to fetch a higher price. So that it's, it's not that hard to explain once you see it from the point of view of the person. Uh, but of course, in the desert, if you're starving or if you're, if you're dying of thirst, you, know, you would give up all your diamonds for a, a canteen of water. Uh, so it depends upon the actual concrete circumstances of time and place, as Hayek might call it. Um, your personal context and your personal knowledge and the personal situation that confronts an actual actor in a real world context. Yeah. Yeah. The individual is very much elementary to the market process, right? It's, it's individuals thinking, acting, deciding. And although we try to ascribe those qualities of the individual to public or society or a nation, it's not, it, it is not true. It's not, it is not an ac accurate portrayal of reality because those are all just aggregates composed of individuals. They're not, there's no sentience in a society or a public or a nation. There's individual individuals with sentience making up this group that other individuals call uh, this aggregate, right? Whether it's public society or nation. So yeah, the, the, that, that blurring of lines is something that I come back to a lot um, in, in trying to diffuse uh, rhetoricians and how they 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 weaponize language i guess to some extent maybe weaponize is too strong of a word but they definitely use language um for deceitful purposes well i think i think one uh, sometimes it's intentional but uh, one thing that happens is language is not always precise and it's unavoidable that we tend to use uh analogies and metaphors uh yeah. it's unavoidable but the problem is that we sometimes get so used to it or so comfortable doing that, that we lose sight of the fact that we're using a metaphor and we lapse into thinking that it's a real thing we're describing. And that, that's right. called, I think, reification, right? It's, it's a philosophical mistake. So, you know, I might say that um, uh, Exxon, the corporation, uh, I don't know, doesn't want a certain tax rule from the US government. Now, that's just a convenient shorthand to describe the the expressed self-interest of most of the interested parties that have, say, shares in or management positions in Exxon. It's a convenient way to describe that, just like saying a carburetor of my car is a convenient way to isolate a functional component so I can get it running again, right? Um, but we have to keep in mind that Exxon doesn't really want things, right? That's just a way of, 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 of using our other concepts, which we use to explain behavior of people or actions of people to the actions or behavior or purposes and goals of a corporation. But we always understand that it's really a bunch of individuals, right? Um, so, but when we lose sight of that, we sometimes make mistakes and we, we, we get confused and we think that these concepts are useful, 
refer to real independently existing things. Uh, and yes. then some people take advantage of that and they, do, they, they, know, they know what they're doing and they take advantage of that to confuse people or to get them whipped up into a frenzy and to vote for what they want them to vote for. Yes, no, that's a, excellently said. And um, I, I've described this as uh, even words themselves are useful fictions, right? They were using to compose other useful fictions. You could think of these as like symbolic structures, but the danger comes when you start to, I guess, take the symbol or the useful fiction for granted that it actually is the thing acting or deciding, as you said with Exxon. Um, so yeah, very, a very important lesson I have drawn from uh, these studies. So I'm going to read, getting into chapter two now, which is titled Property, Contract, Aggression, Capitalism, Socialism. I'll read a quick excerpt here. Hoppe writes, because the concept of property, for instance, is so basic that everyone seems to have some immediate understanding of it, most people never think about it carefully and can, as a consequence, produce at produce at best a very vague definition. But starting from imprecisely stated or assumed definitions and building a complex network of thought upon them can lead only to intellectual disaster. For the original imprecisions and loopholes will then pervade and distort everything derived from them. To avoid this, the concept of property must first be clarified. And this is a, funny enough, exactly what we we're just talking about, right? That'd be very careful mm -hmm. with your words and all the other mm -hmm. useful fictions. He goes on to write, next to the concept of action, property is the most basic category in the social sciences. As a matter of fact, all other concepts to be introduced in this chapter, aggression, contract, capitalism, and socialism are definable in terms of property. Aggression being aggression against property, contract being non-aggressive relationship between property owners, socialism being an institutionalized policy of aggression against property, and capitalism being an institutionalized, institutionalized policy of the recognition of property and contractualism. So, I mean, this is interesting because I think last time you and I spoke... This is the term, this term property, I swear it's the most misunderstood term in the world. You know, it's the basis of civilization, as he's basically saying here. Um, it's, you know, used to define all of these other very critical aspects that he's going to be discussing. But when you say the word property to most people in the world, they think typically real estate, right? That's property, or maybe your car or your, your equity, you know, stock certificate or whatever. But they they think it's the thing rather than the relationship between the owner and the thing between the owner and the asset. And now last time you and I spoke, and I may be wrong about this, but I thought there might be some subtle distinction here where there's a legal version of property. Right. And a pre-legal version of property where I'm thinking like the law by Bastiat, you know, he says that, what does he say that property doesn't exist because we have laws laws exist because we had property and then we developed a law to resolve conflicts over property so is there yeah, some think, is there a distinction think, there yeah so i think the distinction may be more on the word ownership um mises goes into that uh but so bastiat that's an interesting expression by him and i think uh, it was also stated in something like that was in Locke. but i think the idea is that um say law and society are dependent or subservient to or come after, in a sense, property, because 
law is just the respect for property rights. So you have to have property rights in the first place. And you know, people have to have the ability to use these scarce means. Now, the dualistic aspect would be this. Um, property as a right, as a legally recognized right and socially, legally, normatively recognized right um, is like the secure right to control a resource. Um, in terms of human action, which is purely praxeological, purely economic, purely non-normative, and could apply to Crusoe alone on an island where there's no such thing as property rights or ownership, um, the, the fundamental category is scarce means of action. So the scarce means of action are the things we have to use in the world to get things done, to act. But in, in society with other people, there's a possibility of conflict because these things are scarce. So we have property rules to say who owns what. So the property rules reinforce the natural need to use means, right? Uh, now, what Mises points out is that you can have two concepts of, say, ownership. One is what he calls – he wrote it earlier on before he, he changed some of his terminology in human action, but he calls it the, um, the sociological by, by which he meant economic. So there's an economic concept of ownership, or you could think of property, and there's a juristic or legal concept of ownership. And that's really what really ownership is. Ownership is really a legal concept, but um, one is factual, one is normative. So one has to do with possession or the ability to control or command certain scarce resources or means out there in the world. Uh, and one has to do with, with, with the normative right to control that resource. And so what Hans is talking about here is the normative side. So one more wrinkle, when you and I talked previously, I do believe I, I pointed out that there that it's okay to use the word property colloquially to refer to the object of property rights as long as you're aware of this because it's, it's almost impossible to avoid it. But we need to keep in mind that technically speaking, the word property is more the, the relationship between an owner and the thing. The thing is not itself property. You have a property right in the thing. Um, and putting it this way helps to avoid some – usually, it's usually harmless to, to talk of like that thing is my property because what that – it's just a shorthand way of saying that I own that thing or I have a property right in that thing. But if you keep referring to it as your property, then one mistake you can make is the intellectual property mistake, which is that people say, well, like why, why aren't patent and copyright law a good thing because people call it intellectual property, and property is a good thing. And then I say, well… It's not a legitimate property right, and they'll say, well, are you saying that ideas aren't property, which of course is not the question. The question is not whether ideas are property. The question is <laughs> what property rights do we have and what are the rules, and what are property – property rights always refer to exclusive rights to control, things that can be exclusively controlled, which is, which is not ideas. <laughs> they're, they're actually called the public good because they can't be exclusively controlled, and they're not rivalrous. Um, so it can lead to confusion if you're not careful, but… Um, but what Hoppe is getting at here is that property is more fundamental as a normative term and as a juristic term than the other terms uh, like contract and aggression because uh, – and by the way, this is commonly a mistake people make in the conventional understanding of contract. They think of contracts as binding promises, legally enforceable obligations, and some people even think that property is, is dependent upon contract, like you know the social contract people like – People agree as to what property rights are, so they think property rights flow from contract, but this – Bastiat recognized the opposite, <clears throat> and so did Rothbard and, and Williams and Evers when they reformulated contract theory in, into being uh, a set of uh, legally binding promises or obligations resulting from your agreements. 
to proper uh, contracts are simply the exercise of ownership of property by the owner. So if you own a resource, what that means is you, you're the exclusive controller of it. You have a property right in it, which means you can deny permission to other people to use it, or you can grant permission. That's what consent is all about. Um, and that's what contract is. Contract is just the exercise of permission or the lack of that by the owner. So contract is just the exercise of ownership by the owner of a resource. So contract is dependent upon the concept of property. And aggression by the same way. When libertarians say we're, we're opposed to the initiation of force, that's a shorthand term that 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 implicitly presupposes an entire understanding of contract of property rights because you don't know if an act is aggression unless you know who owns what you know if if i shoot a guy it's only aggression if he owns his body but if he's attacking me and i'm shooting him in response and he's kind of given up ownership of his body for the purpose of, of me to defend myself right so uh or if if two people are fighting over over an object uh, we don't know which one is the thief and which one is the owner unless we know what property rights are. So property rights are more fundamental than theft and aggression, and likewise, socialism and capitalism as the systems that either institutionally interfere with or respect property rights. So again, property rights is a more fundamental concept. That's why Hans points out that it's, it's the most fundamental concept next to – next to, uh, what do you say? Action. Next to action. Next yeah. to action. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's yeah, very important point, and I struggle trying to talk about it because the word is so muddied, you know. Um, but yeah, that's that's a very very helpful clarification. You provided and by there. the way, the, one thing I can mention here: um, if people interested in this topic might be interested, go to my website and look up uh, I don't know, Google Libertarian Party platform because I was at the Libertarian Party convention in Reno in May. When the Mises Caucus uh, took over the LP, and I was uh, I was involved in that, and I helped to draft one platform change, one change to one plank in the Libertarian Party platform, where I uh, we we wrote a plank that defined aggression in terms of property, just like Han says here, and then defined property rights as as the as the rights determined in accordance with the three rules i mentioned earlier which is homesteading or original appropriation that means the first person to use an unknown thing is presumptively the owner uh, oh body ownership too so body ownership but then for other things it would be homesteading and then contract because you can transfer your ownership by contract uh or transfer by um transfer to someone um for restitution for a crime that they committed so if someone um, commits an act of uh, tort or hurts you, then they have to pay you some damages, and so that would be another way to transfer property from one to the other. But those three, those three rules, or those four rules: self ownership, homesteading, contract, and we call it rectification. Those are the four core property rights rules, and that's in the Libertarian Party's in Plank two point two point one. If anyone is curious to see it sort of codified there. Excellent. We're just over two hours. Um, you want to put a button on it here and we'll schedule the next one. Happy to do it. Awesome. Stefan, I really enjoy talking to you, man. Um, I always learn a lot. You're just, you're a fountain of wisdom. So thank you for that. Do you want to just quickly, uh, let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Uh, go to NS Kinsella on Twitter or just stephankinsella.com for my website, which has links to everything. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stefan, and I'll look forward to seeing you back here soon. Thanks.